uh, doing this, and uh, I was uh, not able to at that time. And and then my wife was uh, sick for two years, and I had the privilege of caring for her in our home. She never had to go to the hospital and never had to go into a nursing facility. And I was really honored to be able to care for her. And nine months ago, God called her home. And uh, I thank him for the 62 years he gave us. Um, it, the Sunday, this is Sunday school, so we're going we're gonna to work like Sunday school. And, of course, school always has tests. So we're going to start out with a test. It'll be an open book test. And, uh, and there's uh, one question and three answers. So <clears throat> here's the question. God created three institutions. What are they? All right, right down here in front. Give me one of them. The home, all right, that's the first one that he created. The home was the very first one created in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, he, 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 of course, formed man out of the, out of the dust of the earth. And I, I, uh, I remember hearing the story several years ago. A, a, a preacher preached on the fact that uh, man was formed out of the dust of the earth. And a little boy uh, came to his mother and said, I don't know. He said, uh, there's either somebody coming or going under the bed. Uh, so, uh, the, the, that hadn't been dusted, that's what he's saying. Okay, anyway, uh, uh, all right, Go, that's, that's the first institution. Who'll give me another institution? Yes, government. And by the way, that was the second institution that God created. And we find, of course, that created in, in Genesis chapter 9 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's interesting that, that the home was created... And in Genesis chapter 9, uh, was created specifically to fill the earth with people. That was God's plan. And uh, apparently 8 billion people has not filled the earth yet, because if it had, Jesus Christ would have come back. So uh, there's still room for more. And, uh, uh, and now in government, uh, to really see the picture of government, you probably really need to look at First Timothy chapter 2. And, uh, and verse uh, number two, and I think that gives us uh, probably the, uh, uh, the real crux of why God created government, uh, although it was created in Genesis, I believe in Genesis chapter 9, after Noah uh, came out of the ark. I believe that was really when gov- there was government before then, but that, uh, and, I'm, and God, of course, created that as well. But this was the government that we would be dealing with in Genesis chapter 9. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, let's start with verse 1. I exhort, therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And if you put that together with Genesis, uh, with Genesis chapter 9 and with Genesis chapter 2, I believe it is, we find that... Uh, uh, the home was created for procreation, to fill the earth, to, to bring people uh, to life. And then and, uh, government was created for, I believe, three purposes. For protection uh, of the family. And then, of course, for punishment of evildoers. And then for peace. And that was God's uh, purpose in government. And then the third institution. Somebody? Yes, ma'am. The church, the church. And of course, we find that uh, creation in the New Testament, and that was propagation, taking the gospel 
uh, to a, a lost and dying world. And what an opportunity we have. We have around us uh, people who are dying and going to hell. And unless we take the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, that's where they will end up. On our nation, we have a great heritage uh, that God has given us and allowed us uh, to have a government uh, to this point that was uh, was quite has been quite favorable uh, to the church, uh, although we are seeing a change in that in recent years, uh, which is a very disturbing change, I'm sure, for each one of you, as it is for me to see that change. And we need to see that that we need to seek the mind of God, the heart of God, and ask Him to turn our nation, turn it back to that day when we, the church would be. Uh, would be loved instead of being uh, suspected. And so uh, we need to pray for that end. So we have a great heritage, as, and as Baptists, I think we have so much to be thankful for, and I might say even proud of. Over 300 years ago, a small group of English settlers in Virginia sent word back to England and asked for a minister to come and, and meet their spiritual need. They were Baptists. And they lived on the south side of the James. The two Baptist ministers left England to come, and uh, one of those two men died uh, on the voyage. Didn't even make it. Of course, that was not unusual for that to happen. You have to realize that was not a a 14-hour flight. That was a six-week treacherous journey. And if you've been down, have any of you been down to uh, Jamestown to see the little ships down there that they traveled? Any see several hands up. But if you haven't been or up to Massachusetts to see the the replica of the Mayflower, and it's hard to imagine uh, traveling across the ocean uh, in in vessels like that. I just uh, 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 a, a huge rowboat is about what you're looking at. I just cannot imagine that, and especially. Uh, I was born and, and raised in Michigan, along where your pastor was, uh, across the state from him. He was at the Thumb. I was over here across the, uh, well, actually in the middle of the state, Kalamazoo. That's where I was born and raised. And But we had a lot of, of touch with Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. And some of you will remember a few years ago, within a number of years now, that one of those huge ore ships that would would uh, move the taconite from uh uh, Duluth, Minnesota, trying to think where it was, came from, and move it down to the Ford plant there in Deering, right outside Detroit, uh, Michigan. And that boat, that ship started across Lake Superior, uh, and a, a storm came up and literally broke that ship in half. It's just, it's hard, hard to believe. And if you've seen the size of those, uh, ore boats that would move the ore from uh, Minnesota to Michigan, it's just, and, and then you compare it, you could put the whole, uh, fleet that, uh, that's down in, in, in Yorktown, uh, put it, put several of those in one of those ore boats and have room left over. So it's, it's really hard to believe, but six week voyage to come across when, uh, when Robert, uh, Norton of, uh, Norton arrived in spring of 1715, the very first Baptist church was organized in Virginia. It's interesting to me, 715, the very first one was organized. And I've had the privilege of preaching in, in a church in Newmarket that was actually organized in 1756. 
So just a few years and that church is still preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful testimony uh, for standing for the truth for all these years. And uh, I, I, when I, whenever I've preached in that church, I've thought about the fact how early that was organized in our, in our state. Well, uh, trouble was already on the horizon in Virginia. Uh, one of the things uh, Robert Norton had to do was to register as a dissenter in Prince William County, uh, Prince George County, excuse me, as a dissenter or one who uh, did not worship right according to the laws of the land. Excuse me. He was neither an Anglican nor an Episcopalian, and so he was a dissenter. And uh, uh, in the mid-1700s, Baptists uh, had grown so numerous in the state, in the uh, colony of Virginia, uh, that the, the leaders of the colony felt they were a threat And from 1768 to 1778, a wave of persecution swept over Virginia, and over 40 Baptist pastors were imprisoned at one time. Others were beaten and whipped for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. One man wrote, name was Francis Hawks, in 1836, that no dissenters in Virginia experienced for a time harsher treatment than did the Baptists. They were beaten and imprisoned. Cruelty taxed ingenuity to devise new modes of punishment and annoyance. So many Baptist ministers were harassed and their church services were disrupted that James Madison introduced legislation in the Virginia legislature October 31st, 1785. Of course, that was after we became a state titled a bill for punishing disturbers of religious worship. It passed in 1789. One of the Baptist pastors that was uh, persecuted during that time, Pastor John Waller. Uh, he was preaching from the pulpit in a, in a meeting house. That's what they were called. I don't even think they were allowed to be called churches, but they were called meeting houses. And uh, the sheriff came in with the clerk and, uh, and disrupted the service, uh, tried to stop Waller from preaching, and he wouldn't stop. And uh, he took his whip and and ran it back and forth across Waller's Bible as he's trying to preach. Uh, and finally, he took the butt end of the whip, jammed it in Waller's mouth, and drug him out into the street where he proceeded to whip him uh, with, his horse, with his horse whip until actually his back, his shirt was shredded and his, ble- and his back was covered with blood just because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. James Ireland in 1769, uh, to punish him uh, for preaching without a license, uh, was, uh, was put in, in jail and to further his punishment. And if you, you know, you know <laughs> there's a little bit of difference between the jail of 1700 and the jail today. Uh, there's no color television. There's no air conditioning. In fact, there's no food unless your friends or family bring food to you. You think about that. There's no, uh, there's no uh, bed to sleep on. There's no uh, mattress. There's no cot, uh, unless your family brings you that. Uh, there's, no, there's no clothing unless your family brings that to you. There's no heat. 
And, uh, and so he was put in jail. And then to make it worse, they put the town drunk in jail with him. And, uh, uh, and of course the drunk started attacking, uh, James Ireland there in that, in that jail. And you know what James Ireland did? Why, he got out his brass knuckles and worked him over. No, he didn't either. <laughs> James Ireland, when his wife brought the food that night, or the Baptist in that area brought the food that night, he gave it to the drunk. When some church folks brought him a, a, a mat to sleep on, he gave it to the drunk. He shared his clothes, he shared his cot, he shared his food with the drunk. He led the drunk to Christ. And he taught him to read. That's what James Ireland did. John Leland, and you'll hear more about that in the morning service, those of you who were not in the earlier service, so influenced Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in, Matters, Madison in the call for religious liberty for all Christians, Jews, and Turks, by the way. That's Muslims. And the reason... Because they felt if there was religious liberty for all, the Bible would always prevail. But there has to be religious liberty. And unfortunately, uh, the Turks, the Muslims, did not believe in religious liberty. So you've got to keep that in mind. And also the principle of the separation of church and state, which, by the way, the separation of church and state is so misconstrued today, that does not mean that the church <clears throat> is to be separate from the state, is to be, uh, that the state is to be protected from the church, but that the church was to be protected from influence by the state. And I think we, that has become, an, become reversed. Well, it was in the, in the basis of this heritage, <clears throat> excuse me, it was the basis of this heritage that the Virginia Assembly of Independent Baptists was formed in 1976. And their first annual meeting was in September of 1977. Nine Baptist pastors from around the state organized this group to try and protect uh, religious liberty in Virginia. When I came to Virginia, I didn't come to Virginia until 1978. I was not here for their first annual meeting. But the pastor that I came to work for, John Halsey, was one of the founders of VAIB. And I was his assistant pastor in education and, uh, <clears throat> uh, and, and starting a Christian school there in Chesapeake. The school had already been started. I was their second principal. <clears throat> when I came to Virginia, I found one thing very interesting that I had, had never seen before. Excuse me. I had never seen before. I'd worked in several states, and in all the states I had worked in, churches were exempt from sales and use tax, but not in Virginia. In Virginia, churches paid sales and use tax on everything they purchased from a piece of stationery to a hymn book to a Bible to a life. It didn't matter. You paid sales and use tax on everything. Well, one of the issues that VIB wanted to work on uh, was uh, to try and get introduced a very simple bill which would exempt churches from sales and use tax. That would save the churches a lot of money and it would allow them to use more money for their ministry, allow them to use more money to spread the gospel around the world. It was very interesting because they got a bill introduced 
uh, Delegate Richard Cranwell from Vinton, down there by Roanoke, was the one who introduced the legislation. Now, at that time, he was a new delegate <clears throat> in the legislature. He had only been elected a couple years earlier. But he was very close to A.L. Philpot, who was the Speaker of the House. Now, in those days, and, and even somewhat today, but not, not exactly the same, the Speaker had a great deal of power. And so to be close to him was very, very important. Now, there was some opposition to that bill being introduced. And the main, the main reason it was being opposed was because the moral majority under Dr. Falwell was becoming very, a very uh, strong force in the state and was having a great influence not only in this state but across the nation in affecting the religious uh, tone of things and affecting the political uh, uh, strength and, and helping Christians really to have more of, a, more of a strength in that area. So the only way the bill passed in 1972, 1979, excuse me, 1979, was they put on it the Falwell Amendment. That's what it was called uh, in the legislature. And I'll, I'll read that to you so you know what it says. It says, tangible personal property. This, this is tangible personal property. This is tangible personal property. Anything that can be moved is tangible personal property. So the pulpit, the pews, the, the hymn book, the piano, uh, the stand, anything that can be moved. Anything that is affixed to the property is called a real property. So that's, that's, the, that's the definition between two. Then it says, except property used in the form of recording and reproducing services. Because they didn't want the churches uh, sending their propaganda out so easily. That's really what it was about. So that was the Falwell Amendment. Well, it did get passed. That, it was just a very simple uh, six-line bill that said churches are exempt from sales and use tax. Now, in Virginia legislature, and I'm sure in every other state, once a law is passed, <clears throat> it is then given to the department that will administer that law. So in this case, this was a tax law, so it went to the Department of Tax. Now, the Department of Tax then is charged with the obligation of drawing up regulations that will explain the law. And that normally takes two years. So two years later, the bill is now going to go into effect. And the two-line law, six-line law, had, uh, let me see if I can find it here someplace. I think it was about eight pages. Eight pages to interpret it. Well, when we got through with the eight pages, we couldn't believe what we heard. We heard... It said in the law that the hymn book that was purchased for the church auditorium was tax exempt. If you purchased the same hymn book for the Sunday school classroom, you had to pay sales use tax on it. The hymn book, I mean the light bulb for the church auditorium was tax exempt. But the light bulb that was used in the bathroom was not tax exempt. Now everybody knows the light bulb in the bathroom is a lot more important than the light bulb in the auditorium. But, you know, that's one thing about regulations, and that's one thing about law. It doesn't have to make sense. It just has to get 51 votes. I think, you see, uh, somebody said, 
the only kind of, of currency that is missing in Washington, D.C. is common sense. <laughs> anyway, I, I, some of you may work in D.C. and I'm not disparaging you, probably some of you do. But, but uh, I, I tell you, I, I heard somebody say one day to me, there is only one commandment uh, to, to be in the legislation in Washington, D.C., Thou must park thy brain outside the beltway. Uh, better get on something else. Anyway, I'm talking to people who work in Washington, and I don't want you to think I'm talking about you. But there are some that would definitely apply to. <clears throat> well, that uh, I said, that, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. So uh, we went to some legislators, and we said, what can we do about this? And two of the legislators, uh, Delegate George Jones and George and John Watkins, introduced legislation to straighten out the mess, as they called it. The bills were filed with the House Finance Committee and, and assigned to a subcommittee that was chaired by Claude Anderson uh, to be heard. Now, for a bill to become law, it takes five steps. House Committee, House Floor, Senate Committee, Senate Floor, and signature by the governor. Now, this was a House bill, so it went to the House Finance Committee. And... Uh, <clears throat> The, the bill was going to be heard on Sunday afternoon. Now, our legislature, uh, every other year, works 45 days. And the other year, they work 60 days. Now, when they work 45 days, they count seven days a week. And when they work 60 days, they count 60 days. They count them every single day. But I cannot tell you how many times, and I worked as your watchdog for over 30 years before the General Assembly. I cannot tell you how many times <clears throat> bills that I was involved in that were, were of importance to Christians, to churches, to their ministries, are heard on Sunday afternoon. I really believe it was a devil's attempt to keep Christians out of good government. I really do. At that time, I was just voluntarily working some uh, issues for VAIB. I was the executive director of the Old Dominion Association of Church Schools, which is a school, Christian school association covering the state of Virginia, at that time had about 40 or 50 schools in it. And I was an assistant pastor of John Halsey in Chesapeake. Well, um, he knew that I had been working on some school issues, and so I would gotten to know a number of the legislators in Richmond. And he said, Jack, you know uh, a number of these men. He said, I want you to go to Richmond on Sunday, and I want you to testify on behalf of VAIB uh, about uh, that tax bill and see if we can't get it straightened out. So I went to the uh, General Assembly. I went up to the, the Capitol, and the tax committee, the subcommittee, was meeting in a very small room, a room not a whole lot bigger than your platform, really. And there were um, six or eight committee members there. Out of a 20-man committee, the subcommittee would be about six or eight. And uh, uh, half a dozen people who had legislation they were interested in, and that was it. And Claude Anderson was the chairman, and so uh, they heard several bills. And finally, it was time for uh, the Jones and uh, Watkins bill to be heard. And so they got up and presented their bills. They each had a separate bill. And when they got through, the chairman said, Is there anybody here who would like to speak on behalf of the legislation? So I stood up and I said, I was Jack Knapp and I was there on behalf of the Virginia Assembly of Independent Baptists and we were very interested in the bill and that we had had a major part in getting the first, the, the bill, the original bill passed 
And the reason this bill needed to be passed uh, was because the first bill uh, misinterpreted what, what we intended. And, uh, and I gave him the illustration about the hymn book and, and the light bulb. And uh, in addition to uh, the committee members being there, the tax commissioner was there. His name was Mr. Forrest. And uh, Claude Anderson looked at me and said, really? He said, that doesn't make any sense. And he turned to the, uh, uh, the tax commissioner and he said, is that true? Well, the tax commissioner realized how ridiculous it sounded. And, uh, and he didn't want to answer. And he kind of hemmed and he kind of hawed. And, and, uh, and finally, Claude Anderson said, just say yes or no. Is that true? He said, it's true. That's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard of. He turned to John Watkins and, and uh, George Jones. He said, step out in the hall, put your two bills together and bring back in here. And we're going to straighten out this mess once and for all. So I knew there were things they had not put in the, the bill that they had, the amendment that they had put in, the bill they put in. So I slipped out in the hall and I said, uh, I said to them, I said, you know, you really need this and this and this and this in the bill. And uh, <clears throat> Delegate George Jones looked at me and said, why don't you write the law? <laughs> I, said, I said, what? I said, I'm a preacher. I'm an educator. I don't know anything about writing law. I said, hey, there's none to it. He said, we hire a whole division of legislative attorneys. And he said, you just, Monday morning, he said, you just go to the second floor of the GA building and ask for so-and-so and tell them what you want in the law. I didn't know any better. So Monday morning, I drove back to Richmond to our drive. I went to the second floor. I said, I need to speak to so-and-so. They said, the end of the hall. So I walked down the end of the hall, and there was a door open, a lady seated behind a desk, and I stood in the doorway for a few moments, and she said, can I help you? I said, yes, ma'am, I want you to write me a law. Well, she looked at me like I had just arrived from Mars. She said, sir, we don't write laws for people. We only write laws for legislators. I said, oh, ma'am, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. I said, Delegate George Jones told me to come and have you write this law. Would you call his office, please? She picked up the phone. She talked on the phone for a few moments, showing up. She said, Mr. Knapp, have a seat. What do you want in your law? <laughs> so I sat down and explained to her all the problems that I knew that had been, uh, that, had, that we'd uncovered in that eight, pa- eight pages of regulations. And uh, she put it all down in the proper legal jargon. And, and, uh, and lo and behold, it, it, uh, uh, it, it went to the uh, committee. <clears throat> Excuse me. It went to the committee and, and, and it passed. It went to the floor, and it passed. It went to the Senate, and it passed. It went to the House, and it, and, it, and the governor signed it. And, wow, my first chance at writing law, and it passed. It became law. I said, just call me Moses. <laughs> <laughs> well, <coughs> excuse me, I got a little tickle in my throat here. If this bottle's big enough, I'd pass it around. You could all have some, but uh, anyway... Well, it didn't take us very long, and, and, and we realized that our, our victory was uh, very short-lived because in two years, we got eight more pages of regulations, and we had more issues that we had to face. And, and that battle went on for 30 years, for 30 years. And, and, but, you know, in the end, God gave us the victory. And sometimes along the way, we would get a victory from sources we didn't expect. But you know what? In my 30 years of working with the legislature, I learned that 
that sometimes, and our brother back here who gave the illustration this morning, sometimes God is working in ways we don't, we don't understand. You know, it's like that bulb under the ground. And uh, I came in one day and Delegate Plum from Northern Virginia, never, never, never been a friend. If he knew that I was for something, he was against it. Uh, and, and he had introduced a legislation. And let me find it here for a second. He, uh, he introduced a legislation which would make church-run camps and conference centers exempt from sales and use tax. I could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. And uh, I went to his office. I thanked him for, uh, for putting in the bill. And I t- said we would give our full support behind it because, of course, we have Camp Rapidan and other the camps around Virginia that would, pop, would profit from it and, and also from summer uh, other types of camps and conferences. And, uh, and he thanked me for that. And the bill got passed, but I don't know why he put that bill in. I'll give you another illustration, and then i got to move on. Um, Dr. Falwell wanted to get his college exempt from sales and use tax. It's an educational institution. doesn't matter what you think of Dr. Falwell. It should have been exempt from sales and use tax. Other colleges are, and his should be. Well, that bill was put in, and... Uh, and, oh, there was a storm against it because of his conservative position on so many issues that affected the public policy. And so uh, there was strong opposition. And I was walking through the Capitol one day and uh, uh, through the General Assembly one day, and uh, Delegate Stambaugh, a man who, I'll tell you how much this man liked me. <laughs> if I was walking down the sidewalk and he was walking toward me and he saw me, He'd cross the street and walk on the other side. Uh, to say that we didn't agree on anything would be, uh, would be an understatement. I was walking through the General Assembly building one, one day and, and he said, Nap! Got a minute? Well, if a legislator says, you got a minute, I've got a minute. He said, come on in. He was standing in his office and I walked in. He said, shut the door. I shut the door. I was looking around for a gun or a knife. I didn't know why, you know, I didn't, I didn't know, if he, you know what he had in mind. He said, uh, <clears throat> he said, he said, you know, I'm on the tax committee. I said, yes, I know that. He said, well, Chairman uh, Cranwell has appointed me uh, uh, number one committee, the one-man committee on tax exemption. I said, okay. He said, uh, he said, Dr. Falwell wants to get his college tax exempt. I said, yeah, I've heard that. He said, you know I'm a fair man. I didn't want to say anything. I said, okay. I was careful. You know, God, be careful what you say. I said, okay. And uh, he said, I want to do what's right. I said, okay. He said, but I don't know anything about him. I said, okay. He said, do you know him? I said, yeah, I, I know him. I've met him a few times. He said, do you know how his college is run? I said, no, I don't. But I said, I, I know a pastor who knows him very, very well. And I said, I'm sure Dr. Fall will be glad to come here and, and talk with you. No, 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 I don't, I don't want to talk, I don't want to talk to him. He said, uh, I want to know how it's organized though. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can find out. So I went home and I called this pastor I knew who was very close to Dr. Falwell. In fact, he was practically an adopted son to Dr. Falwell. And Dr. Falwell flew to Richmond and took this legislator out to breakfast and explained everything about the how the college worked and everything. And God used it to uh, get his tax exemption for the college. And, and 
You know, you don't know what God is doing in the background. I, I don't know that man would have ever called me in, but several years before that, when I'd first gone to the legislature, I noticed we had special days for all kinds of things down there. And uh, I went to the Speaker of the House, A.L. Philpott, and I said, you know, there's one day we don't have down here, and that is Religious Liberty Day. And the day that the Virginia General Assembly adopted uh, Thomas Jefferson's Statute for Religious Liberty, that day, which I believe is the 16th day of January, should be Religious Liberty Day. And uh, uh, A.L. Philpott said to me, my folks are all primitive Baptists. He said, I, I will agree with you. He said, I'll see what I can do. Well, <clears throat> I didn't know it. I didn't know any better. But the speaker never introduces, leg- almost never, never introduces legislation. So instead, he would give it to somebody else. And of all the people for him to assign that to, he assigned it to Warren Stambaugh, that man who so opposed me. And one day I ran into him in the hall before this Falwell incident came up, and I thanked him for putting that bill in. He said, oh, he said, I just did that because Speaker Philpott asked me to. But, but God used that to open the door. We don't know what God is doing. You know, one of the things God taught me down at the legislature is, no matter what happens, smile. And so when I would walk out of the legislative meeting where I just got beaten to a pulp, I'd have a big smile on my face. And I found out that people wanted to know what I had up my sleeve besides my. How could I smile after being beat up that way? That's because my trust was not in what the legislature was going to do. My trust was in the God who said, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turneth it whether so he will. I want to get back and conclude with this, and I'll close off here. After almost 30 years, we finally got the last bill. I forget how many bills we had to put in to get the tax exemption really finished up for the churches. I was sent in my office, and my wife, Judy, she said to me, Honey, somebody's on the line for you from the Department of Tax. Hello, Jack Knapp speaking. Dr. Knapp, I'm from the IRS, and I'm here to help you. No, no, that's not what he said. (laughs) No, that's not what he said. (laughs) He said, said, Dr. Knapp, he said, my name is Todd Gacky. We've never met. I'm very new here at the Department of Tax. However, anytime church tax law is mentioned, your name comes up in the same conversation. So though I don't know you, it seems everyone else down here does. I guess you must be an expert on church tax law. Well, we've just finished writing the draft of the regulations for the 2007 tax law. And my boss, Lillian Owens, asked me to contact you and ask you if you'd be willing to look over the draft before we send it out. So after... They would finish the draft of the new regulations. They had to be printed up and sent out for public comment, and then they have to be voted on. Could I email the draft to you? Well, he emailed the draft to me, and I opened it up. You know what? 30 years ago when I started in the legislature, there was no email. And, you know, I actually figured out how to use it. So that was, that was quite a miracle in itself. Anyway, uh, and, and I opened it up. And normally, the, the draft would be about eight pages, and it was 18 pages long. Man, my heart bounced off the floor. I thought, oh, no, what in the world have they done this time? Because in eight pages, they could make enough mess of the tax law. And, uh, <clears throat> and I read it over, and there were only a couple minor corrections, and I found out that most of the new pages just 
gave page after page of things that were tax exempt. And the last few pages explained how to use the ST13A form, which churches use for that tax exemption. It was a 30-year battle, and the battle was over, and God had given the victory. You know, God doesn't promise us pray today and have victory tomorrow. But God expects us to stay by the stuff and never give up because he is on the throne. We know, hey, we know what the last chapter is all about. We know where the victory is coming from. But in the meantime, we have to stay by the stuff. We have to stand for what is right because it's right, not because it's necessarily easy, but just because it's right and because God has given us uh, the strength, the power, and yes, even the wisdom to know what to do in each of these cases and thank God for it. Thank you so much for your time. Let me just mention one word about tonight. Tonight, uh, we're going to do something a little different, and I hope you'll be back tonight for it. Uh, pastor I is, is going to take on a new role. The pastor is going to be one of those hardline um, interviewers, you know, the ones that ask all the hard questions. And uh, he's going to be interviewing a special guest. That's me tonight. And we're going to share some of the uh, battles of the past. And, uh, and uh, so you can see God is still working. Yes, God parted the sea for Moses. Yes, God stopped the lion's mouths. Uh, and you read through Hebrews 11, and God did all these things. But you know, the God of the Bible is still the God today. And I think sometimes we look around us and we get discouraged with what we see. And I hope you'll be back tonight. This is going to be a a radio broadcast. But uh, it's not going to be broadcast anywhere but right here. So you come back tonight at 6 o'clock and uh, be praying uh, for God's blessing uh, for you and for us in that time. Pastor, I'll turn it back to you.